Thank you. Thank you very much. That's, that's a very kind uh, introduction. Thank you for that. Um, yeah, it's, it really is. I know speakers have to say this, like it's an honor to be here, but it, it actually is. <laughs> Don't tell the other place I spoke at that, you know, I was lying to them, but... Um, Oh, that was across the street. <laughs> I'm off to a bad start. No, I, I've, I've known about Asbury Seminary for, for decades and have been a, just so impressed with the people coming out of here. I've met a lot of graduates and, and have uh, read books by your professors. And so it, it really is. This, is. this is an honor for me to be here. So thank you for um, coming to chapel. And we are going to dive into a difficult topic, but I, I just want to first of all thank you for, um, I mean, you're here because you're probably preparing for some kind of ministry, and to be desiring to go into some kind of ministry in a post-COVID, post-2022 world is not for the faint-hearted, and so many pastors I talk to are, are burned out, are burned up, and um, the last few years have been incredibly hard, and um, so I'll thank you for doing what, or preparing to do at least what you're preparing to do. My, I've got four kids, four teenage kids that are asking the question. They're wondering whether they want to be a part of the churches that you are going to create. And so your future ministry is very important for me. Our, our culture, as you know, continues to become more and more post-Christian, in some ways anti-Christian. And so discipling the next generations is going to be challenging. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's no secret that the LGBTQ conversation is among some of the most pressing questions facing the church. And so that's part of what I want to talk about today is what it looks like to disciple the church in this absolutely important uh, conversation. I've spent the last eight years, in case you don't kind of know my background, I spent the last eight years or so um, helping primarily church leaders engage the LGBTQ conversation with theological faithfulness and courageous love. I'll save you all the background, but I am so passionate about getting the Bible right. I, I got saved, I'm, I'm, I'm 46 now, and um, I got saved at 19, and I, I didn't read a book until I was 17 years old. I hated to study, hated to read, didn't care about learning. I was an athlete, and I just wanted to be on the ball field. And when I got saved, almost overnight, God gave me an unquenchable desire to study the Bible. I would lock myself in my room for like seven hours straight just studying studying, reading, reading, asking questions. Like I just, and I, I don't use the term like miracle lightly. Um, I would say it was definitely a work of God in my heart to, to overnight give me a hunger to study the word of God. And I still, I, 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 um, I can't believe I get to do what I do to study the scriptures and, and teach others about it. I'm so passionate about getting the Bible right over the last several years, I've also realized that um, we also need to get grace right. We need to get love right. And the church has not done that typically very well when it comes to conversations like the LGBTQ conversation. So I'm equally passionate about creating a church culture that can embody the kindness of God toward sexual and gender minorities um, and as 
probably you already know, they haven't always experienced that kind of kindness within the walls of our church. So I'm equally passionate about trying to change that church culture. Um, Questions related to faith, sexuality, and gender are among the most pressing ethical questions facing the church today. I I don't think that requires much justification, but um, I... Just in case you want to get some numbers around this conversation, um, according to the latest poll, 20.8 of Gen Z identifies as LGBTQ. Um, That's up a a few percentages from just a year ago when the same poll was taken. Uh, Among adults, 7.1% identify as LGBTQ. Um, Especially when it comes to the the trans conversation, there's been a, a, a really rapidly growing number of especially teenagers, uh, especially female teenagers, I- identifying as trans or, or wrestling with their gender identity. In the, in the UK, there was a, there's been a 2,000 increase among males and 5,000 increase among biological females who are going to gender clinics because they're, they're, um, they're either uh, troubled with or wrestling with their biological sex, wrestling with their gender identity on some level. Um, here's a couple graphs. One, the one on the left is from the UK, the one on the right is from New Zealand. But this is true of any Western country. We've seen a massive rise in teenagers wrestling with some fundamental aspects of what it means to be human. And you might say, okay, well, but we're Christians. <laughs> that's just non-church stuff that's going on. Well, the numbers are not that different when you survey both people inside the church or outside the church. According to a recent Barna survey, I think this, the, the methodology in this survey I don't think was that great, uh, but um, no offense to George Barna, but he, you know, he said 39% of Gen Z identifies as LGBTQ and 30% of Gen Z Christians identifies as LGBTQ. Um, that, that survey I don't think was, again, the methodology is that great. This, me- this survey was fantastic by Andrew Marin a few years ago. It's one of the largest sociological studies done on the um, the religious background of LGBT people. He surveyed over over 1,700 LGBT people, and 83% said they were raised in the Christian church, which is higher than the national average of just people. Like, so if, I think it's like 73, the national average. So if you meet somebody on the streets that's not part of a church, and you ask them, you know, were you raised in a church, if, if one is an LGBT person, one's a non-LGBT person, it's more likely that the LGBT person would say, yes, I was raised in a Christian church. 51% have left the church, but only when they, when they, when they were surveyed and asked, like, why did you leave? The, the dominant narrative is it's the traditional teaching on marriage and sexuality that's the main thing driving LGBT people out of the church. I hear that a lot from primarily straight people, for what it's worth. But according to actual LGBT people, only 3% said the main reason why I left the church was because of the traditional teaching on marriage and sexuality. They list uh, uh, many other relational um, issues. Like, I, didn't, I just simply didn't feel safe in the church. Relational disconnect with the leaders. I, I, I just, leaders didn't know me or didn't seem to want to get to know me. 
incongruence between teaching and practice. That's a fancy way of saying hypocrisy. You know, I'm in this hospital for sinners, and I'm looking at, um, you know, half of the congregation is, seems to be, you know, addicted to porn. Um, this person's had an affair. This person's been divorced and remarried. Half the youth group is having sex outside of marriage. And a prime and that's a conservative estimate, and which is okay. We're all we're all here. We're all you know. We have we're we're we have we're broken, and we're we're trying to get healed or whatever you know in the church. It's a hospital for sinners. That's great. But the second I talk about my story, people look at me like I grew a second head. I can't be in a place where there's just such hypocrisy. Now, some <laughs> some people share these statistics. Um, to, you know, look at the high percentage, you know, and it's kind of, it, they share them to produce, like, fear and alarmism, like, we need, to, we need to build bigger walls, you know, keep the gaze out or whatever. I'm sharing these statistics because I think God has put us in a situation where there's beautiful pastoral opportunities to embody the love and truth and grace of Jesus toward a marginalized population that has typically not experienced that in the church. Aside from the statistics of, you know, uh, people who identify as LGBT who are in the, in, in the church, um, a lot of younger, especially, especially younger, straight Christians, this is, um, they, they have many friends and siblings and parents, um, friends of friends who identify as LGBTQ, and they're just not interested, they're just not interested in being part of a church that cannot Talk about this because silence signifies that you don't think somebody exists. And a church that can't talk about it, or when they do talk about it, it's in a very non-loving way. That is, that is part of the reason why there is a massive eg- exit from the church among especially younger population. They have many questions. I get questions all the time. And um, why is gay marriage wrong? What's wrong with two people of the same sex getting married? Does the Bible really say it's wrong? Where does it say it? You know, my my friend just told me that the Bible's been mistranslated. Is that true? And if you just say, well, no, no, it's been translated fine. Well, (laughs) are you sure? Like, do you even know the, do you know what I'm even talking about? Like, what's, what, what is the meaning of Arsenakotes and Malakoi in 1 Corinthians 6, 9b? And how do you know that that's been translated correctly? Because a couple translations don't seem to be accurate. At least that's what my friends tell me. Can you disciple me through this aspect of the conversation? These are not fringe questions I get. Why would God make someone gay and tell them it's not okay? My friend just came out as non-binary and wants me to use they, them pronouns. Is that okay? Why or why not? And what does it mean to be non-binary? Is that different than being, have you been two-spirited or intersex? Like, what's the difference between the, the, these are people coming, and what I don't, I, I, I appreciate when I get these questions, but what, I, what really um, bothers me, <laughs> maybe that's too strong, I'll keep, I'll stay with that, is when they say, I'm asking you my question because I can't ask this in church. I don't know anybody. To, I'm scared to ask somebody this question because I, they'll look at me all, all weird. These are my friends. These are my siblings. My sister is gay. Can I attend her wedding? Why or why not? Silence is not an option. And, and let, me, let me, look, I, I'm, I'm, v- I'm very well aware of the grind of ministry. 
okay? I, I've, I've been there. I've done that. I'm, I'm, I'm in churches all the time. I know the grind of ministry. You got meetings all day on Monday, counseling all day on Tuesday. You're marrying somebody on Wednesday, burying somebody on Thursday, wishing you could bury a few more on Friday. And then you got a sermon to prepare on Saturday, but you have your own therapy to go to. And you wake up Sunday feeling guilty that you forgot about the Sabbath, you know. So I... <laughs> I, 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 don't, I don't want to, I, I don't, just because this is kind of the world I swim in, you know, when you, when you, when you live in a, in a topic, you can think, this needs to be everybody. But let, let me, I think a really good case can be made that this, uh, that discipling the people that God has entrusted you in this conversation should at least be elevated toward the top of the most important things to do in 2022. Not the only thing, but among the top, it should be at the top of that list. So that, that's, I guess that's my one main point this morning, is that discipleship needs to happen. That discipleship needs to happen. Now, there's good ways of going about that and really bad ways of going about that. So let me uh, spend the, next, the rest of our time uh, giving you, what is this, uh, five kind of quick tips on, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be speaking to those of you who are going to be in some kind of, let's just say church ministry. I know not everybody's going into church ministry, but let's just say, you know, you're going to be on some level a leader in a local church. And you say, okay, I, I, I want to be faithful. I want to disciple uh, the people that God's entrusted me in the LGBTQ conversation. H- how do I even go about that? Let me give you five tips. Number one, um, we need to, you, need to, you need to prepare yourself and other leaders around you to engage this conversation. Because I um, going into this conversation unprepared can do more harm than good. I remember getting asked by a church um, uh, in my hometown. They're like, hey, I forget exactly how they ordered it, but it's kind of like, hey, we need to do like a homosexuality sermon. Can, can, can you come and do it for us? I'm like, well... Mm, that's weird, but um, like when? Uh, in like a couple weeks. I'm like, dude, I'm booked out like a lot longer than that. Um, nah, I, I'm sorry, I can't, I can't do that. And, and then the, email, the response I got was like, oh, okay, I, okay, I guess we'll, we'll just do it. And I was like, please don't. <laughs> like, I can just tell by the way your email is worded, this is not going to go over well. Like, better to wait and prepare before. And then do it in six months or even a year. Even though there is an urgency here, I don't want to let urgency drive quality. I want people to be prepared before they enter into this conversation. My, my friend John Tyson, you might know the name John Tyson. He's a pastor in, um, in Hell's Kitchen in Manhattan. And um, he, was, uh, he did a series on, I think they called it the controversial Jesus or something. And, and he surveyed the congregation and said, hey, we're going to do the next six Sundays on um, controversial D Jesus, like what are the things you want me to address? Like what are the, what are the controversial s- things that, you know, you would like Jesus to speak into? And it was like, you know, <laughs> almost all the top questions had to do with the LGBTQ conversation. And he's like, all right, let, well, I'm going to dive into this. Well, he, I swear, he, he read probably like 15 books before he even entered into that sermon series. He prayed and fasted for a month because he knew the spiritual warfare was going to be incredibly intense. And his sermons, and his sermon series, if you, it's online, you can listen to it, is some of the most well-rounded, holistic, um, wise, 
well-educated sermons I've, I've ever heard on, on the topic. It was incredible. But he knew that he needed to prepare himself before he went into this conversation. And I would say, in as much as you have the power to try to cultivate healthy, honest, ongoing conversations among your leadership team. Don't rely on just your leaders being able to sign some statement because even within, if, they, even if, if you're on a leadership team and they all believe in a traditional sexual ethic, there's many different ways of holding on to that sexual ethic. You could have one person that thinks he kind of holds his nose and signs it. He doesn't, he's not, doesn't, he kind of, if he could rewrite the Bible, he wouldn't write it this way. You know, that kind of posture, like, well, I, I kind of hold on to this I guess I'll sign the document because I need to keep my job. When a person comes out to him, his approach is going to be different than your other elder who's like a huge advocate of like ex-gay, you know, therapy. And he's going to approach somebody else maybe different when they come out to, to them. So um, even within the traditional view, it's, if you're not having honest conversations and dialogues and, and going through sources together and having in-depth conversations with your leaders, you might have even within a traditional sexual ethic, a wide diversity of how people are thinking through this question. There's some basic things to understand. I'll just list a few. Uh, LGB is different from T. A, a lot of people don't really realize that. I, t- I talked to a mom the other day, and her son is in the process of transitioning, and she was in freak-out mode. You know, her son's becoming her daughter, and... Um, what do I do? What, what's going on? I mean, she was in disarray. And, and then she said something. <laughs> she said, um, you know, I, I, I know he's not gay. He can't be. He dated girls, you know, she, and he just, he's not gay. And I was like, yeah, maybe he isn't. And she's like, well, he's, he said he's trans. You know, he's transitioned. I'm like, so? A lot of trans people are straight. Like, being gay and being trans are two different things. <laughs> One has to do with who you're sexually attracted to. Another has to do with who you identify as. And some trans people are gay, some are not gay, some are straight, some, you know, some are bisexual. Um, and it just, she sat there like her circuits are kind of blown that these are kind of, that there's diversity within the LGBTQ acronym. Uh, another thing to always know is, as I said earlier, this is not an us versus them conversation. Sometimes we talk about this topic, we, when I say we, I mean st- when straight Christians talk about this topic within a church context, we assume that like, oh, everybody here's straight, and all the gay people are out there, and here's how we should, it's a, you know, we use like us versus them language. We need to not go about this conversation in that way. The debate shouldn't be about acceptance. We should never ask the question, should the church accept LGBT people? That's such a dehumanizing way of even framing the conversation. The question is not, should we accept this person or that person? The question is, what is the, the meaning of marriage and definition of sexual ethics that we're accepting all people into? Like, the, the issue should never be, what kind of person do we accept? I mean, we should, I, this might be shocking. We should even accept straight people. <laughs> despite how chaotic straight people live, you know. It's not about like you as a, all humans are welcome to come and consider and follow the very narrow road that Jesus calls us to. The question is, what does that narrow road look like? Not which person should we accept into that narrow road. Um, I, another leadership conversation should be, do you, do you think that simply being gay is a sin? 
would you hire a gay pastor? Why or why not? You should never answer that question without asking a question. What do you mean by gay? Because one person might think gay means like, oh, if you're gay, you are in a same-sex relationship. You are for gay marriage. You, you know, uh, for most people, being gay is simply I, I experience an attraction to the opposite or same sex, not the opposite sex. Well, do you think that that experience itself is sin? If you do, then what does repentance look like? These are not abstract questions. These are on the ground of discipleship in, in the church. We need to get our arms around some basic language, uh, understanding of language. Uh, the difference between gay and trans. Why most gay people don't like the term homosexual. Um, what does queer mean and how is it different than being gay or lesbian or bisexual? What terms should we use? What terms should we avoid? Language can either be a relational bridge or a relational wall. And so many well-intended, well-intended, godly, straight, conservative Christians often use language in a way that's very off-putting without even realizing it. So we need to disciple our leaders in understanding language well so that we can help our people understand language well. And if all this sounds overwhelming, um, yeah, it should. I mean, <laughs> it is kind of overwhelming. But you've been through COVID and the 2020 election, so you're good. You got this. Um, okay, second, second point. Um, as we disciple our people, we need to embody both grace and truth. Equally, passionately, we need to embody both grace and truth. Jesus had a very high ethical standard. I mean, have you ever read like the Sermon on the Mount and then tried to go do that? <laughs> I mean, the Sermon on the Mount is like one of the most stringent religious speeches of all human history. Jesus had a high ethical standard, but he somehow was able to excessively love people who fell short of that standard. This is seminary, so I can get kind of like technical and stuff. There's a beautiful arrangement in the Gospel of Matthew where you have speech, narrative, speech, narrative, speech, narrative, and the speeches are somehow related to the narrative that follows the speeches. What's interesting is Jesus, after Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 to 7, you've got a narrative, Matthew 8 and 9, that contains at least nine or ten encounters with other people who weren't living up to the Sermon on the Mount. Most of them. Some of them were like lepers who were just were marginalized just for non-sin you know, sin reasons. But other people were living very much against the Sermon on the Mount. What's fascinating is in each encounter, after he just preaches high ethical standard, he always front loads like love and kindness on some level or a desire for relationship when he encounters the people in Matthew 8 to 9. We can get the Bible right, but if we get love wrong, we are wrong. Because part of the truth of Scripture is the command to embody the counterintuitive, scandalous, incarnational, agape love to those around us. And, and if we take the rhythm of Jesus seriously, I can, I can say, especially those who have been marginalized by religion. Jesus seems to have a special place in his heart for people who, for whatever reason, have been pushed to the margins of religion. And look, I say all this, you know, grace and truth, and, and I'm a truth guy. That's my, my default is a truth guy. 
I'm, I'm, I'm a Gen Xer. I'm part of the generation that raised up Mark Driscoll. Like, we, we just would just hit me with, just, just yell at me and tell me how bad I am. I'm like, yeah, I love it. You know, like, we, <laughs> I, that's my default. I've had to learn the grace side, and I've had to learn that if our truth will not be heard until our grace is felt, the greatest apologetic for the truth is love. People aren't going to want to listen to your truth if they don't feel your grace. So, so if you're like, yeah, I'm a truth guy too. I'm, we need to p- preach the truth. And if, if you are passionate about preaching the truth, all the more reason to embody the kindness of God. These two are not at odds. Number three, number three, um, we need to, you know what, I, got, I can put this up on here. Nope, I just took it away. Do you know how to reverse this? You got it? Okay, cool. What, what's with that weird quotation? I did not put that there. That, that is weird. <laughs> you did that. <laughs> Number three, we need to disciple our people in a holistic view of sex, sexuality, singleness, and marriage. Here's what I don't want, and, and sometimes, well, sometimes it happens unintentionally, but Sometimes when we talk about, I mean, we're kind of doing it now, uh, so let me clarify that sometimes if we just isolate the LGBTQ conversation as some side thing over here, it can be very othering, as if it's some whole separate conversation. We, we need to disciple our people in just the, the grand, beautiful vision of the Creator's plan for sexuality and sexual expression and marriage and singleness. Like, what is, what is marriage for? Try this next time. Two young people, um, you know, want to get married. Like, hey, you know, they come to you and like, hey, we're getting married. Say this. Say, awesome. Why? <laughs> Why? Well, we 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 love each other. Well, yeah. I mean, I I love my sister. I'm not gonna, you know, like, I love people. Well, you know, and then of course they're not gonna say it. Well, we kind of want to have sex with each other. Okay. Well, what's that for? What is marriage for? I, 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 no one has, I'm 46 years old. I don't think I've ever really been discipled in what is the, what is marriage? What is marriage for? I mean, we just kind of adopt this secular cultural view of sex and marriage and falling in love. And then we add a little footnote. Our contribution is don't have sex till you get married. But it's like, no, the Christian vision for marriage is, is just, it's countercultural. Romance is, you know, that's a culture, that's a more recent kind of cultural, you know, um, not, not recent, not, it's become a centerpiece in marriage more recently in the West. And the Bible does talk about romance on some level, but to reduce marriage to simply, oh, I'm romantically attracted to this person, therefore we're going to get married, I think that cheapens God's grand vision for what marriage is, is for. We need to help people understand a, um, a robust, beautiful view of singleness rather than you know, creating a culture where it's just kind of assumed that if you do everything right, you do your devotions faithfully, you don't go past first base with your boyfriend or girlfriend, then God's going to bless you as spouse by 25. That's not in the gospel. There's no guarantee, there's no promise in the gospel that God's going to give you a spouse and give you a flourishing sex life if you minimize your porn intake until you get married or whatever. Like that's just, but I, and I don't, I don't hear it explicitly, but it's very thick in the air of the Christian church that singleness is a stage to get through until God gives you your spouse. And so we say things, you know, we'll see a, a pretty 
35-year-old woman at church, and you'll hear the ladies in church say, wow, she's so pretty. How come she's not married yet? Do, do you know how theologically problematic that statement is on so many levels? We can't give the impression that, you know, God wants you to marry the person of your dreams. And then we turn around and tell gay people, oh, you're not allowed to marry the person of your dreams. And this is where my affirming friends will say, yeah, we need to change that second part. They can marry the person of their dreams. I'm going to say let's reframe the first part. Let's not make this kind of some gospel norm that marrying the person you're sexually attracted to is kind of baked into the gospel. Singleness is a high calling. Marriage is a high calling. But these are vocations with kingdom purposes around them. Uh, number four, how am I doing? Oh, okay, I'll, I'll be quick with these last two. Number four, we need to create space for people to ask honest questions without fear of saying something wrong. This, again, my, my, my whole ministry exists because this doesn't exist in many churches. If I had a nickel for every person to email me a hard question and said, I can't ask this in church, I could never ask my pastor this, um, I, but you seem to, you know, like hard questions. <laughs> we need to create a climate where people can say something that might be off, you know, or even say, well, hey, I'm leaning in this direction theologically. I have some questions about this for them not to be reprimanded for being honest with where they're at with their beliefs. Not addressing their questions doesn't make the question go away. It makes the person go away with their questions to another source, which means Google, right? They're just going to go their question isn't going to go away if it's not addressed. So, so, as, so even like, you know, okay, so I need to preach a bunch of sermons on sexuality and gender. I said, yeah, yeah, I think that that could be part of the discipleship process. I would also create space like a Sunday night event where it's just Q&A, a time for people can ask hard questions. Um, I think people, there's just, people have so many questions and um, yeah, they need, they need to feel like their questions are being addressed on some level. Lastly, my final point is we need to keep Jesus at the center of it all. We can't ask people to give up magnificent things if they've only met a mediocre Savior. And this is not, this, this, this goes for anybody, gay, straight, with whatever thing we're wrestling with, finances, time, certain relationships that maybe God is calling you to move away from. We can't ask people to give up things that are really important to them if Jesus has not been held up as supreme. I mean, we, we serve a king who was crucified and was raised from the dead three days later, who ascended on high and reigns over the universe at the right hand of the Father. And if somebody actually believes that, that is a mirror, that's a beautiful miracle. If they say, I want to I follow that king, I want to join him in his victory, and, and he is my Lord, I'm going to follow him. Like people, when people have a radical, disruptive encounter with the risen Lord of the universe, they can do radical things through the power of the Spirit that Jesus has given him. So I, I just want to, Jesus is primary. Having a radical encounter with Jesus is primary. Everything else is, is secondary. And I'm not saying that, you know, if you just, oh, you get, when people get saved, everything falls in line. I'm saying we need to make sure we are embodying the radicality of Jesus' lordship 
in our lives and in the lives of the church. And then we can talk about sexuality. The only way we'll be able to see our sexuality in proper light is if we view it from the perspective of the risen king who invites us to come die with him because it's in dying with Jesus where true life is found. That's the, we, need to, we need to continually disciple people in that beautiful narrative as we are working through questions of sexuality. I want to pray for your, all of you, and then um, I think somebody's going to come up next. I'm, I forgot what the order is here. <laughs> Lord, I'm so encouraged to look out over all these people who are um, in ministry, preparing for ministry, desiring to disciple people to follow that crucified and risen Savior. Lord, I pray that you would give them courage. We're all going to need more courage, Lord, as, as the years roll on. And so I pray that you would empower all of these, all of us, Lord, through the power of your Holy Spirit to be courageous with the truth and courageous with our love. In Christ's name, amen.